the idea of Philippians is this verse in Philippians 1.27 serving as the key to understanding the whole of the letter of Paul's letter to this church. And this passage of scripture, this one verse says this, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so this verse sets up the whole worldview and context and understanding of what Paul is speaking of in this letter. And in order to better understand the verse, there's really two primary thoughts that help us grasp what Paul is saying. The first is this, the Greek word for gospel or good news is euangelion. And in the first century Rome, it is a political term which is announcing a new leader taking over, a new leader stepping into authority, into power, and, uh, and really uh, announcing this new rule and a, and a change of direction of leadership. Now, our modern definitions of the gospel and this, this idea of gospel tend to focus on themes of Jesus died for my sins and uh, he, he you know, can live in my heart and I can have eternal life. And that's how normally we would frame the definition of the gospel. And although all those things are completely true and they're very good, in and of themselves, they do fall short of what the term gospel meant in a first century context when the authors are presenting this and we find this in scriptures. And so uh, the gospel as a concept emphasizes Jesus as the highest authority whose kingdom has come to earth as it is in heaven. And the gospel is really this idea that Jesus was before all things, that all things are made by him and for him, and that he is above all things. And this is speaking of Jesus' rule and authority and reign as the highest figure. And this is what we know as, uh, of, uh, it's, it's actually kind of a, a bit of a funny term. It's called the cosmic Christ. But it comes from this word, the cosmos. And it means that Jesus is above all. In, in all of creation, anything that we can see, even things that are unseen, even in the spiritual places and the high places, Jesus is the ultimate authority. And Christians were persecuted by Romans because their allegiance to Jesus was viewed as a threat against Caesar's ultimate rule. And it was, all, it was this idea of, of, of pledging allegiance to Jesus over even uh, belief and, and allegiance to Caesar. This is why Paul himself is in prison while he wrote the letter, and this is the cause of the persecution that the early church was facing. The second idea to understanding this verse of living as citizens of heaven, worthy of the gospel, is to know that Philippi was settled as an outpost of Rome to convert the local residents to full-fledged Roman citizens. Before he became known as Caesar Augustus, the first Caesar over the unified, the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome Empire, he was first a regional leader by the name of Octavian. And as Octavian was rising to power, there were a few other opponents, there were a few other regional generals that joined together. They were in Philippi. They joined forces to oppose Octavian's rise to power, and Octavian went with his centurions to face off against them in battle. And he defeats them in battle, and this paves the way for Octavian to take over and become uh, the first Caesar, to become Caesar Augustus. What's interesting is this battle is known as the, the Battle of the Plains of Philippi. And what Octavian does is he sends his centurions and he releases them from their military duty and he sets them free to settle in the lands of Philippi. 
and to form a city and build a city that will now bring the culture and the art and basically bring Rome to the local people. And it's to win the people over and to make them full-fledged Romans. More than just living within the borders of Rome, but adopting their whole culture and their way of life, becoming Romans in every way. And the city of Philippi actually becomes the greatest representation of Rome outside of Rome itself throughout the entire kingdom. And everything about the city was created to bring the art, politics, and culture of Rome to the region. And so Philippians were continually bombarded with the lure of the indulgences and the excesses of the Roman lifestyle. And this is why Paul calls the Christians, why he reminds the believers to say, don't forget your citizens of heaven. First and foremost, as God's people, you are citizens of heaven above the call to be a citizen of Rome. That is subservient to your faithfulness in the kingdom of God. And so Paul's message is still relevant to us today because the call of the gospel, the call of the kingdom of Jesus continues to be choosing him over the fading treasures and pleasures of life here on this earth. And with that in mind, we read Philippians 1, 21, 24. And this is Paul encouraging the church and sharing his heart. He says this, for it to me, living means living for Christ. And dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between the two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. Paul shares his heart in this raw vulnerability. He's not a leader who's trying to put on his game face so that his other, you know, the people he's pastoring, encouraging, so they, they maybe don't see his weakness. He's really showing his entire heart. He's letting them see what's on the inside. He would rather face death than life in prison. Now, some have questioned if Paul's vulnerability indicates he's depressed. Maybe he's wrestling with different, different things. Some have even said, is this Paul advocating for suicide or advocating for this kind of a solution to his scenario? Has Paul given up on life? Has he lost the will to live? Paul is the most prominent leader of the early church. He wrote, penned two-thirds of the, the letters and the books of the New Testament. He's considered a giant among faith giants. Why would he say, I, I actually would rather choose death over life? What's going on in this passage? And what's important to know is that most bad theology is formed by taking one or two isolated verses and building an entire doctrine or entire belief system on them. And we, we fall short when we fail to take in the context of Scripture versus the letter, the author, what's going on, what's really being said. How does those one or two verses fit into the larger message of what is being said? Because those things all need to be congruent and to line up with one another. And it's important to remember that Philippians is not a message of defeat and despair, but rather it's filled with words of hope and encouragement. Paul is writing to encourage his fellow believers to keep going, to not give up. 
Philippians 1.6, he, he starts his, his whole letter by saying, I'm certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. He says, I know things are tough. I know things are bad. I know you're being persecuted. I know it looks like things are kind of falling apart and there's maybe no easy solution or way out that's just right in front of us right now, but hold on, keep going. The message of Philippians is to the church that Jesus is faithful. Keep pressing on. And those themes come up all throughout the book. And so we interpret and understand these verses of Paul sharing his heart. Say, I'd even rather choose to just be with Jesus and have it all done than to kind of keep going under all this persecution. How do we, how do we frame that? And we reread those words with this understanding that Paul is actually encouraging the church with a message of hope. He says, I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. Paul would prefer to be with Jesus in eternity. He has nothing left to prove. He's worked hard. He's ran the good race. Paul has accomplished the mission that has been set out before him. He's planted churches. He's brought the gospel to all regions. He's been used by God. He's seen Jesus do incredible things. He's not defeated or suicidal. He's been faithful and he's ready to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. He's completed the task at hand. To die is gain and to live in Christ is not a confession of despair or giving up. It's a declaration of deep, resolute faith in Jesus. Paul won't give up and he pledges to continue serving Jesus as long as he has breath. With, with every breath that he breathes, with every breath that comes into his lungs, he will now serve Jesus. He will now plead, uh, pledge his allegiance to the kingdom of God. He won't stop preaching the gospel. He died long ago to the temporal pleasures of this world. Paul is not longing for the Roman lifestyle. He's not longing for the pursuit of the excesses of Roman citizenship. His meaning and purpose is found in making his life count for the kingdom of God. And he knows this, no matter what side of the jail bars he finds himself in, he can still serve the kingdom. He can still be an active participant in God's story over his life. Paul is the living definition of living as a citizen of heaven, worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the takeaway for us some 2,000 years later is that we all make this same decision in our faith in Jesus, maybe at different intervals, maybe at different levels, but this becomes part of the decision of our life and our belief of faith in Jesus. Are we going to live as a citizen of Rome or as a citizen of heaven? The distractions of this world take our focus off the kingdom. Our modern Rome is the consumer culture that we live in. Rome is the pursuit of things and pleasures at the expense of corrupting our soul. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 16, 25, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. That's the kingdom. That's the reign and the rule of Jesus. 
He says, you can gain your life here on earth, but in the end, you're going to lose it. But if you live as a citizen of heaven, you will gain eternal life. So how does Paul maintain this resolute faith while in chains? How does he find the strength to serve the kingdom when the kingdom doesn't appear to be coming through and helping him in the way he would hope, the way that he would want? Have you ever felt that disconnect between some of the hopes and expectations and the things that you have in your faith and the story of your life or the moment of your life that you're in? Where sometimes there's a disconnect. Sometimes those things don't always line up. For Paul, there's no end in sight for him getting out of prison. There's no end in sight of the persecution that the church is facing. The Roman Empire is not weakening. Things are not getting better. They're actually getting worse. They're becoming more on the radar. And there's lots to be discouraged about. There's lots to be disheartened about. He's holding on to faith in Jesus, the Most High. And a lot of things are not really going that well. How does he stay so focused on Jesus when the reality of his circumstances don't line up with his faith? And I think the answer is actually found in chapter 4. And this is why we understand Scripture and the intent of Scripture as a whole. We can't just look at one or two verses and then just develop a whole understanding. We, we look at the message of what's being presented. Paul starts by saying, God is going to be faithful to complete the work in you, Philippians 1.6. And then he finishes the letter by signing off. And, and in Philippians 4, 4 uh, to 7, he says this, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all that you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. And then we get this verse seven. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. The churches he's planted are being crushed under persecution. He's facing death or life in prison, but he's found joy and peace in Jesus. It says, above all, and then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds everything you can understand. It will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. There are two insights from verse 7, which are crucial to understanding God's peace, which in, it, in itself, when we're in connection with the peace of God, the peace of God is, is connected to the presence of God. That's why he says, you will continue in Christ Jesus. As you live in Christ Jesus, you will receive his peace, which guards your heart. Because God's peace is connected to God's presence. And when we're rich in God's presence in our life, what we find is we're full of courage. We're full of hope. We're full of grit to keep going. We're full of the ability, as in, in, in uh, Philippians, Paul says, press on. Press on in your faith. This all comes from being connected to Jesus in our worst, lowest moments. 
It's holding on to the presence and the peace of Jesus when other things are not lining up by faith stepping in, leaning in, and letting him fill our hearts. And verse seven gives us two insights into kind of fostering God's presence, fostering his peace in our lives. The first is God's peace exceeds anything that we can understand. This is peace that surpasses understanding. And the second is that God's peace guards our hearts and minds. And I want to give you a couple of pictures that will help maybe put that in, in some context and help you connect it. And sometimes I find that, uh, that there are certain things in my life, there are certain thoughts, realizations, pictures that, that help pre, uh, present a spiritual truth. They help put it in a way that I can remember. Uh, the snowstorms over the past month over the, the Christmas season reminded me of a family trip we took to Vancouver when our kids were a little bit younger. Uh, when, when our kids were younger, one of the coolest things in the world for them to do was just go to a hotel. It didn't matter where it was. We even, sometimes we checked into a hotel in Kelowna. Like you pack the suitcases, you drive six blocks, you pull into the Fairview or whatever, and you go to the hotel. Like it's just the elevator, it's the swimming pool, it's this whole experience. Our kids just loved doing it. And we went to Vancouver for a few days, and, and after a few days in downtown Vancouver and exploring, we started back to Kelowna. We got into the van, our Honda Odyssey, the valet park guy came up, you know, we loaded the suitcases in, we started to drive. It was pouring rain, like dumping rain, as it only does in Vancouver. And by the time we got out to the Portman Bridge, it was turning into sleet. By the time we got out towards Surrey and into Langley, it started to snow, and cars are in the ditch everywhere. By the time we get to the Sumas Prairie on the outer edge of Abbotsford, we are in a total, complete, whiteout blizzard. It was the worst. You couldn't see anything. Uh, it was like stressful. We were barely crawling along. We stopped, and then we'd go a little bit, and we'd stop some more, and cars would come up behind and go into the ditch, and it was just spooky and surreal, and I felt restless, and I just didn't want to be there. And so we made the decision right at Whatcom, we're going to turn around, and we went and got a hotel, and we thought we're just going to wait out the storm in Abbotsford. And about, it was very shortly after they closed the highway and all the hotels in Abbotsford got booked up and we were so thankful that we had a room. And there we sat in our hotel room in the dark without power because the storm raged. And the, it was an ice storm from the rain that had happened earlier and the days leading up to it. The trees froze with ice on. Everything was heavy. They were all coming down. Uh, they were knocking out the power lines. And here we sat in our hotel room with our candle and uh, trying to talk to one another as a family because none of the devices were really working. And we waited out. And the next morning, about 10 o'clock, they opened the roads. And so we got in the van, we got all loaded up, and we were ready to go. We had chains, we had shovels, we had blankets, we had extra food and water. If we got held up on the road or got stranded, we figured, you know what, we'll, we'll just, we'll go for it, we'll see what happens. And, and the road, it was icy, the snow was blowing, you can't even see, you know what it's like, the, the car in front of you would disappear, you don't know, are you on the road, what's going on? It took us uh, over two hours just to get into Hope, and by that time, all of the girls in the car needed the potty break, and so in we went, and we stopped at Chevron, and we got coffee, and we gassed up, and we thought, okay, we're going to do this. And we pulled out of the Chevron and we got stuck. 
right there in the intersection in front of Chevron had to get pushed out. There's so much snow, so much ice, the Odyssey just didn't go anywhere, okay? And so then we start on this trip, white-knuckled, leaning forward, peering out the window, super slow, worst, most stressful trip ever. And you've all been there and you all know what that's like. I shut off all the music and all the noise so I could just be focused. And you realize you're not released. It's, you're all tense. You're, all, you're peering out, trying to figure out where you are. And in the midst of that, somewhere high up on the connector, in the silence and the stress, we hear this. Incredible laughter coming from the kids in the back seat. And it was this contrast, this like it broke through all of the stress and all the fear and all the anxiety of the moment we were in. My kids are laughing and having fun. And you look in the rear view mirror and there's my kids and they're having the time of their life because they've got their headphones on and the DVD screen is playing Toy Story 3 and Ken and Barbie are having their fashion show. And they're full. They've got, they've got snacks and drinks They're wrapped in their blankets. There's chip crumbs and popcorn twists all over them. There's Kool-Aid marks and smiles on their face. And they're laughing and cheering and having the time of their life. And I thought, what a contrast in what they're experiencing and what I'm experiencing. The storm is all around them. They were in the same moment that I was. Somehow, they felt no stress, no worry, because they knew dad was up at the wheel and he had things under control. And they were just completely disconnected from all the fear and all the anxiety and everything else that was blowing and swirling all around them. Because they knew that their dad was up there and he had it, and they were good. And they got their peace, not because there was no storm. They got their peace because they knew that dad had it. And I think in some respects, that is a picture of what it means to have peace that surpasses understanding. Paul is in prison. Things are so bad. His best option is to face death over life in prison. His friends are being persecuted. Things are not looking good. But Paul seems to fix his eyes more on his heavenly father up in the driver's seat than he does on the storm blowing all around him outside the window. Paul's peace comes from knowing Jesus and not focusing on the circumstance that he's in. His trust and his peace comes from Jesus. And what he finds is that Jesus' presence is with him right there in his jail cell. And in fact, the the activity of the kingdom continues in his jail cell. Paul says there's even jailers, there's even some in, in in the ruler's households that are coming to faith because of him being in prison. I'm going to invite the band to come as we get ready to wrap things up this morning. The other picture I want to share is how the peace of God guards our hearts and our minds. 
Philippi was a garrison city, meaning it was fortified. It was a fortified Roman presence as an outpost. And so it was protected by sentry guards. Sentry guards would stand high up on the wall. They would watch over all the entrances and all the entranceways into the city. And they would watch out over the wall into the area, uh, the surrounding area to see if any threat was coming. They were the first to sound the alarm. They were the first to hold their, their fortified entrances and their city. And sentry guards were a common sight to Philippians. Now, the Greek word used to describe a sentry guard standing at his post is the same word we use to describe God's peace. When Paul says God's peace will guard your hearts and minds, it is the word picture of a sentry guard standing high up on the wall. The Philippians were well acquainted with that picture. They knew that seeing a sentry guard up on the wall meant their city was protected from intruders. And when Paul told them the peace of God would guard their hearts and minds, they knew that what Paul is saying is God's peace will station its post at your heart and prevent fear and anxiety and worry and stress and all these things from getting into the inside, getting into the gates of your city, into the gates of your heart, into the gates of your mind. Because when we post God's peace and presence high up on the wall of our life, when we focus on God, when we make room for Him, when we put our eyes on Him instead of the storm around us, the sentry guard of God's peace pushes out fear and anxiety and worry and all those kinds of things. Fear and worry and doubt and anxiety and all the terms we give to describe those emotions, those moments of turmoil, you know what they're like when they get in. They sneak in to the city. And once the enemy is in the city, the enemy runs the enemy opens the door to let more in. The enemy sneaks by, gains ground. It's God's peace that pushes those things out. Because when they get a hold of our heart, it's so much harder. It's so much more difficult. Paul says, don't forget your citizens of heaven. Let God's peace, let God's presence Guard your heart and mind. I want to just lead us in a moment of response. And I think there's an opportunity for us to respond with an invitation in this moment. And so in this moment, I invite you to just pause with some reflection and meditation. Would you just maybe bow your heads, close your eyes, think about your life. Think about the present circumstances, the present stress points, the things of worry and distraction. Maybe it's the call to be a citizen of Rome over a citizen of heaven. Maybe there are some difficulties and some problems and some relationships that are struggling in your life. 
Is there fear? Is there worry? Is there doubt? Is there anxiety? Do you need a fresh, a freshness of God's presence, of God's peace in your life? Do you need to say, Jesus, somehow this snuck in and made its way into the city. I pray that your peace would be posted high up on the wall, that you would guard my life, that fear and anxiety and worry and all these things would be pushed out. Is that reminder there that Jesus is with you, that he's protecting you, that he's watching over your life, that he's in control, that he's got this? And I wonder today, at the beginning of this new year ahead, if you need to make a fresh invitation to say, Jesus, would you bring your peace again into my life, into my home, into my kids, my marriage, my finances, my decisions, my relationships, my loneliness, my sin, my habits, my addictions, my struggles, my weakness. Jesus, would you bring your peace? Would you strengthen me? Would you help me? If you're at a place in your life that you would want to invite the peace of Jesus to come and stand guard over your heart, I'm going to get you just to slip your hand up for a second and you just put it down. It's just a way of saying, yeah, it's, it's like an identifier. You don't have to hold it up. It's not for anybody else to see. It's just this step of saying, Jesus, that's me. I need your peace, my home, my life, my marriage, my secrets. I need your peace. Jesus, would you come? Would you watch over? Would you post the sentry guard? over my life, over my mind, over my heart so I can keep going, so I have faith, so I don't give up. Jesus, would you strengthen the church? Would you minister to us? Would we be reminded in this year, in this moment to first live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven? where our hope is knowing you above all the situation and all the circumstances surrounding us. Jesus, fill us. Post the sentry guard of your peace over our lives. In your name, amen.